Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting December 5th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, some very smart kids and one very smart adult. We'll have interviews with the winners of this year's Siemens competition in math, science, and technology, and a chat with the competition's lead judge, Nobel physicist Joseph Taylor, who also talks about his life and research. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. The annual Siemens competition in math, science, and technology rewards the nation's most talented high school scientists. Over 1,300 students competed this year, with the competition coming down to six solo and six team finalists. The judging took place over the weekend, with the winners announced at New York University on December 3rd. And the team winners were Janelle Schlossberger and Amanda Marinoff from Plainview, Long Island in New York, who worked on potential new tuberculosis medications. I spoke with Janelle immediately after the ceremony. Hi, Janelle. Congratulations. Thank you. Hello, Steve. Talk about what you guys actually did. Um, well, in our research, which is primarily organic chemistry, we synthesized two compounds that can potentially serve as anti-tuberculosis agents. And these compounds can target drug-resistant forms of the disease because they have a novel target, which is called the FITC protein. And what does the FITC protein do? Is it a receptor? What, it, what does it actually do within the context of the, the TB bacterium and the disease process? Well, the FITC protein is an essential cell bacterial division protein. And in order for the bacteria to divide into two daughter cells, the Z-ring needs to form. So if the Z-ring doesn't form, then the cell will elongate and ultimately die. What's the Z-ring? The Z-ring is this um, highly dynamic cytokinetic ring where a lot of the FITC monomers come together. And in order for, as the cell as um, cytokinesis occurs and the depolymer- depolymerization takes place, which allows for the Z-ring to contract and the uh, daughter cells to form. Okay, so you just basically you're interfering with mitosis. You're interfering with cell. You're interfering with cell division, and so the the infectious agent doesn't have a chance to grow. Right. And how did you get the idea to attack TB from that end? Well, the lab that we worked in is primarily a cancer research lab, and the compounds that they study target tubulin. After investigating several journal articles, we realized that FITC is a structural and functional homologue of tubulin. So anti-cancer agents, such as the benzimidazoles and taxanes, can now serve as anti-tuberculosis agents. And so why is... The, the TB issue, something that you became particularly interested in? Um, well, I was really interested in pursuing TB research because we often don't hear about it in the United States, but it actually infects one-third of the global population. So it's really a tremendous problem. And could this be a, a potential way to get into the problem of drug-resistant tuberculosis because it's a, it's a novel uh, kind of therapeutic? Exactly. The benzimidazoles that we synthesize can form a foundation for almost a second generation of anti-TB drugs because they target a different protein. Also, the FITC sequence is conserved, and it doesn't, it remains, uh, has similar sequence throughout all prokaryotes. So the chance of developing mutations, which would lead to consequent drug resistance, is not as probable. Right, because it's such an important uh part of the cellular machinery. That's why it's been conserved, and that's why it's particularly vulnerable. Right. 
Could you talk about uh, what your future plans are? Do you know what college you want to go to? Um, well, not yet. Um, decisions would come out in spring. So according to your little bio here, you also were a finalist in the DuPont Challenge Science Essay Competition. What was your science essay subject? It dealt with multiple sclerosis, and I did. Re- I had read articles that dealt with a new study where they used Schwann cells to remyelinate the demyelinated axons in um, the central nervous system. Did you do like a review of that yeah. research? I see. It's a literature review. So I had read up a lot about multiple sclerosis, and I also... I found that that particular study, I think it had been done in um, Yale University, seemed really exciting, and it was uh, it could be a potential breakthrough in MS research. Well, congratulations again, and thanks very much for your time. Thank you. You're welcome. The individual winner was Isha Hamani Jane from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. She found out something new and exciting about bone growth by studying it in zebrafish. Hi, Isha. Congratulations. Thank you. Hi, Steve. So tell us about your project. You worked with zebrafish. Right. And first of all, why are zebrafish such good model organisms? Um, There's several reasons for that. They're more simplistic of the vertebrates, um, so I can use their simplicity to my advantage and manipulate various features of the zebrafish and understand vertebrate bone growth as a whole. Also, if you amputate their fins, they regenerate. Um, Initially, it was because they had clear embryos, um, but there's a lot of reasons for that. They have their fins, which is what I looked at, formed by intramembranous ossification, so similar to the way that the human skull and clavicle are formed. So there's a lot of analogs and a lot of um, similarities between humans and zebrafish. So, And what exactly did you discover and why is it important? So I established that bone growth of these segments occurs via pulses of growth. And this whole time we were expecting a constant rate of growth. And so I looked at this data and I saw that there's pulses. So it's really important because it's another way for us to regulate growth or the fish to regulate growth. And so 15 years ago, Dr. Lample showed that human stature and head circumference um, grow saltatorily, and it was a big deal in developmental biology then because it established that maybe there was this um, synchronizing hormonal mechanism. So now my work is the first evidence of these pulses at the level of the cell, and so it has implications in understanding the whole pattern of growth and the very fundamentals of these mechanisms. And saltatorially, you mean in spurts? Right, in spurts. So it was shown that um, they did work on a 13-year-old in humans, and they showed that the growth occurred during 12 periods, each approximately 24 hours, followed um, with interspersed rest phases uh, from 1 to 100 days. So I'm seeing the same thing in zebrafish now, of these pulses at the cellular level. And that's why it's so important to understand what's going on at different levels of organization. And again, what kind of possible applications could this have? Uh-huh. Yeah, well, so, I mean, as I said, understanding the fundamentals of bone growth is the first step to understanding um, bone disorders. So, bone dis- like, for example, ocular digital dysplasia is a disorder in humans, and it's caused by mutation in connexin 43. So some of my recent work actually has been looking at this connexin 43 molecule and um, looking at the role for this in zebrafish, because the mutation in zebrafish causes a similar phenotype. So again, if I look at fundamentals of bone growth in zebrafish, we should be um, finding the fundamentals of vertebrate bone development as a whole. That's great. Then do you have any idea where you want to go to school yet? Uh, not yet. I have to go home and apply. <laughs> um, but anywhere that has good bio research, I want to do bio and math. So wherever there's a good biology and math program and where I can do research from the start. Well, that's great. And congratulations so again. So much. It was nice talking to you. 
The lead judge of the competition was Joseph Taylor. He's Professor Emeritus of Physics at Princeton. In 1993, he and Russell Hulse won the Nobel Prize in Physics for their discovery of a binary pulsar system and its implications for the understanding of gravitation and general relativity. We talked about the competition and about his life and work. Could you talk a little bit about what this whole process was like for you yeah. and uh, the, the quality of the research you saw? Well, the uh, the process, uh, as you probably know, uh, starts with the student projects being due uh, in early October, and then there are regional competitions and leading to this national competition. We have a, uh, a national judge uh, selected to be an expert in the uh, explicit field of each of the six individual and six uh, team uh, finalist projects, uh, and then a, a, a 13th judge, myself, uh, as the national lead judge. Uh, so we, we uh, get together uh, starting Saturday of this weekend. Uh, to we've already read the projects, uh, the, the written reports that the students have prepared. On Saturday, we spend some time, uh, quite a bit of time, going through the posters they have prepared, uh, presenting their material. And uh, in each case, uh, we assemble around each of the posters in turn, while the primary judge for that project uh, uh, answers questions and explains uh, fine points to the other judges who may not be uh, experts explicitly in that field. So we begin to form our impressions uh, at that time. Then, of course, on Sunday, we uh, hear each of the individual uh, entrants and the teams uh, present their work uh, to the public uh, in, in this auditorium. Uh, and following each of those presentations, we uh, are in, uh, go off to a separate uh, closed room where we can talk individually with the, with the uh, project members. So at that time, uh, we can explore in, de- in depth uh, the uh, originality, the contributions to the project that each one of the students has brought, uh, and uh, begin to uh, form some impression of how we would rank the project in the end. It's it's a wonderful uh, experience for the judges. I think we've all enjoyed it, and uh, uh, we all felt that we worked very hard at it. It was a lot of tough, tough decisions had to be made in the end. Is there anything that we can conclude about the future of American science based on this selection? <laughs> well... I would like to uh, to think that the answer is yes. Uh, after all, we're talking about a, a small number of individuals here, and we'd, uh, we we have problems in in science and mathematics training uh, uh, nationwide that uh, a few uh, superstar students are not going to be able to solve by themselves. But uh, it is a very good uh, sign that uh, some students are very interested in these things and are willing to put the time and effort into uh, excelling at them. And we hope their their great interests uh, spread widely. I was uh, uh, thrilled last night to hear of the fact that the Siemens Corporation is donating to uh, schools uh, empty trophy cases uh, with the stipulation that these cases must be filled with academic trophies rather than uh, football, baseball, uh, basketball, and et cetera trophies. I myself was a schoolboy athlete and loved those things, but uh, I think there are other things that are important in life as well and should be strongly recognized in schools. One thing that, uh, based on the finalists, it seems as long as America remains a nation of immigrants, that's going to be a really terrific thing for our sciences. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, we we see uh, people here with a very wide range of, of backgrounds, uh, family uh, histories, and, and uh, parts of the world that they their families originated in, and uh, it's to our, we've always been a melting pot, we still are, uh, it is to our great strength that we are. Let's talk about your background, you, you said you were a, uh, a schoolboy athlete, 
And uh, I read your your brief autobiography on the Nobel site yesterday. Uh, why don't you tell the story about the chimney, the, your house chimney? I uh, was a farm boy uh, as a youngster uh, in, in a, on a peach farm in New Jersey, uh, a little pl- a plot of land uh, on the Delaware River, just across the uh, Delaware from northeast Philadelphia. It's land that's been in my family since uh, 1720. And uh, it's a great place for kids to grow up. Uh, because we were on the farm and not in town, uh, my siblings and I were uh, necessarily all of our own best friends. I had a, a brother just a year and a half older than I. Uh, we did things together all the time as youngsters. And we got interested in gadgets and electronics and, and machinery uh, as youngsters. I think sort of starting with farm machinery and then evolving to uh, crystal radio sets and uh, radios that we started to build out of uh, the pieces removed from uh, junk television sets. And we uh, became uh, interested in, uh, we learned the Morse code and, and uh, uh, taught ourselves ne- what was necessary to become licensed as ham radio operators. Uh, for that, of course, we needed to have antennas. Uh, we strung wires in the trees and uh, built things on the roof. Uh, our old Victorian farmhouse was easily adapted to many purposes, not the least of which was holding up uh, ham radio antennas. And we had one very ambitious project that was uh, attached to the chimney. Uh, it, the antenna rotated so that it could uh, direct our signals into various parts of the world. And uh, one windy day, uh, not, not only the antenna was blown down, but the chimney blew down as well, uh, breaking it off uh, flush with the roof. And following that, uh, we had a uh, not... I mean, we had a certain amount of uh, grumbling, obviously, from our parents, but also uh, received lessons in bricklaying as we repaired the chimney. <laughs> Which probably come in handy in, yeah. in astrophysics eventually. It's good to know these traits. <laughs> I don't know it well, but I learned it enough to uh, be able to do some repairs anyway. How many words of uh, of code per minute could you could you send and read? I, I learned uh, code at the level of about 35 words a minute as a youngster, and, and it, although uh, my ham radio interests were put on the back burner for about 35 years between 1965 and about uh, the year 2000, um, I became interested again in ham radio, or, or anyway, active again, uh, at, in about 2000, and discovered that my code speed had hardly lost anything. Uh, it's sort of like riding a bicycle. If you learn it young, you don't forget it. And uh, I'm, again, a, an avid ham radio operator these days. Do you want to reveal your uh, your call sign? Uh, Kilo One Japan Tango. <laughs> For anybody out there who wants to get in touch with Dr. Taylor via ham radio, you you got into the technical aspects of radio and became a radio astronomer, and eventually... You made this really interesting discovery with a uh, uh, concerning a binary pulsar. Now you weren't out there looking for binary pulsars. We were out there looking for pulsars. This was just a few years after the first pulsar had been discovered by the group at Cambridge University in England. Uh, I had finished my PhD thesis at just about the time that discovery was made. I was looking for a new topic of uh, scientific inquiry and and, uh, got into uh, studying pulsars right at the beginning. I had an idea as a young assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts of how to interface a mini-computer Computers were then just becoming uh, uh, usable in, in sort of standard scientific laboratories. And what we then called a mini-computer, which is about the size of a refrigerator, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we, the idea was to interface the mini-computer to the radio telescope uh, more or less directly and, and to allow the computer to look through the data very carefully in a way that would isolate the signals from a pulsar. Uh, there were a dozen or so pulsars known at the time. 
we felt that we had a good shot at being able to discover another uh, several times that number, maybe 50 or so, um, and could study their distribution throughout our galaxy, thereby learning something about the way uh, pulsars are related to other types of stellar objects in the general scheme of galactic evolution. And we're talking uh, about the early 70s right this now. This is the, uh, yes, 1972 uh, and thereabouts when starting the project. Um, so uh, we, we did, I, I applied to the National Science Foundation for a, a very modest research grant of about $30,000 that was going to uh, buy us the computer we needed, uh, which was then about $20,000, and buy us a few airplane tickets to uh, back and forth to Puerto Rico because we wanted to use the Arecibo radio telescope, the very largest uh, and most sensitive radio telescope in the world, still to this day. And uh, the project, we, we did mention to the NSF in that proposal that uh, it would be especially important if we could find a pulsar in an orbiting system, a binary pulsar, because then we had a chance to measure the mass of a neutron star, a very important quantity, which was theoretically thought to be approximately known, but we obviously needed an experimental proof of that. And that has turned out exactly what we were able to do. So you actually were looking for a binary. Well, uh, we it was a sort of a throwaway line in the proposal. We had no reason to expect that it was likely. Uh, we did know that most stars are in binary or more complicated uh, stellar groups, uh, but at that time, zero pulsars were known to be uh, affiliated with another star, even though uh, 30-some pulsars were known. So... Uh, we wondered why. Uh, obviously, pulsars are created in supernova explosions, so it's not that unreasonable for an orbital uh, pair to be broken up during the supernova. But it didn't seem likely that 100% of them would be so broken up, and uh, we were looking for the few that might not be. And what was the, uh, the implication of the discovery and the data that you accrued related to, I mean, the important thing was was related to general relativity. So can you explain that briefly? As it happened, uh, when once we knew what we had discovered, a binary pulsar uh, completing its orbit around the other massive object every eight hours, uh, this was a remarkable uh, uh, orbit. The uh, two stars were so close together that if either one had been an ordinary star like our sun, they would have been in contact or even inside one another. That was clearly not the case. These were very dense, uh, compact objects, neutron stars, and they were moving in an orbit at uh, mildly relativistic velocities, moving about one-tenth of one percent of the speed of light. That's an amazing velocity, 300 kilometers per second. Uh, and uh, the orbits were highly eccentric, elongated ellipses, and for this reason, uh, we knew right away this would be a relativity laboratory. Uh, people quickly pointed out that it should lose energy owing to the generation of gravitational waves, and uh, a fairly uh, simple calculation showed that we should be able to measure that probably in five years or less, and so we set out to do that. And indeed, your uh, your experimental results agreed with Einstein's predictions to within... Well, uh, to within uh, three years, actually, we had a measurement to within sort of 25% accuracy. Uh, interestingly, the experiment is one which uh, inherently rewards patience because the interesting quantity accumulates with time, and it accumulates not linearly but quadratically, so that after two years, you see a certain amount of effect. After four years, it's not twice as big but four times as big. After 16 years, it's, you know, it, it grows uh, exponentially. And, and so after uh, 
30 years or so since the discovery now, uh, 30 plus years, uh, we have a, a experiment that gives accuracies of, uh, at the few tenths of a percent level. It's a remarkably accurate experiment. We're asymptotically approaching Einstein's prediction. And, and indeed the, uh, measured values agree, uh, within the experimental uncertainties precisely with what Einstein would have predicted in 1915. I wish we, we could keep you around just for the people who send us their, their, uh, theses that they come up with uh, at Scientific America, we get a lot of letters from readers who have proven Einstein to be incorrect in many ways. Uh, I receive one of those letters about every week. <laughs> so you get them too. Right. There's, there's a lot of uh, tension in, in the, the world of science and religion right now in certain respects. Now, you grew up in a rather religious environment but there doesn't seem to have been any conflict between your religious upbringing and the pursuit of knowledge through science. I find no conflicts uh, that that bother me uh, whatsoever. I mean, for me, uh, religion is a very helpful uh, guide uh, to one's life, uh, gives one uh, ground rules, uh, sort of a personal uh, uh, code of ethics and and philosophy of, of living together happily with other people. Uh, it, uh, science is, is uh, evidence and experiential based. Uh, in fact, uh, spiritual things can be experiential as well. Uh, and and uh, we don't take things uh, in science on faith. We we insist that they be uh, built on evidence. And uh, I just don't find any conflicts that bother me. Again, you grew up as a Quaker. Uh, indeed, and and I'm a practicing Quaker to, to this day. But there's nothing in your religion that uh, precludes any kind of scientific information. There's no um, confusing your religious teachings with science, which seems to happen in some cases, and that's what leads to the the conflicts. I I agree with that entirely. I I mean, I think that does lead people to conflicts, and and, uh, once one focuses on the fact that uh, religious teachings and scientific knowledge uh, do not address the same questions, uh, I don't think there's really any problem. Well, it was a real pleasure to speak to you, and I thank you so much for your time and for the really entertaining stories. My pleasure. It was fun. For more on the Siemens competition, go to www.siemens-foundation.org. You'll find a webcast of the ceremony and project descriptions for all the finalists. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, but only three are true. See if you know which story is Totally Bogus. Story one, divorce might be tough for families, but it's actually good for the environment because individuals use fewer resources than families do. Story two, a small dose of buckwheat honey performed better than the cough suppressant in cough syrup in tests with kids. Story three, young chimps outperformed college students in memory tests. And story four, the Texas State Education Agency's director of science was forced out after forwarding an email announcing a talk by a philosopher who has written about why intelligent design is not science. Time is up. Story four is true. The Texas Ed Agency's director of science was forced out for allegedly being biased when her position calls for neutrality. Of course, recognizing that evolution is science and intelligent design is not science is simply reality. What's probably really going on in Texas is that textbook purchases are on the horizon. Millions of dollars are at stake. So look for more fun evolution bashing in the days to come in the Lone Star State. Stars at night on.
are big and only 6,000 years old. Deep in the heart of Texas. Story three is true. Young chimps outremembered human adults. The chimps involved had been taught to recognize the numbers one through nine. They and the humans were briefly shown individual numbers on a touchscreen monitor. The numbers were then replaced with blank squares. The chimps and humans had to remember which number appeared in which location and then touch the squares in the appropriate sequence. And the young chimps did better than either their own chimp mothers or the humans did. The work appeared in the journal Current Biology on page. <laughs> And story two is true. A small dose of buckwheat honey given before bedtime provided better nighttime cough relief and sleep in children than no treatment or dextromethorphan, known as DM, a cough suppressant found in many over-the-counter cold medications. That's according to research published in Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescent Medicine. The FDA recently recommended that over-the-counter cough and cold medicines not be given to children less than six years old, so the honey news is good news. The research was supported by the National Honey Board, an industry-funded agency of the United States Department of Agriculture, for anyone interested in taking it with a grain of salt. All of which means that story one about divorce being good for the environment is totally bogus, because a study just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences found that divorced individuals use a lot more natural resources than do intact families. For more, check out the December fourth edition of the Daily Siam Podcast, Sixty Second Science. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out numerous features at the new siam.com website, including news, blogs, slideshows, and videos. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the-